From the very onset of human civilization, we have developed laws to govern how we act. But naturally, with humans being humans, we have broken every single one of those laws. That means that since the inception of civilization, we have had trials. On today's episode of the Gems of History podcast, we dive into the beginning of trials as well as some of the most famous court cases and trials of history. For, oh shit, I have to do that. <laughs> it's, not, it's not bad. It's no, not no, bad. it was good. I also love that every time there's a trial of the century, there's like 15 other trials of the century in that century. Oh, they really just need to break it down by decade. Like, yeah. <laughs> like how you can't have a team of the century because right. there's like the Utah Jazz had a run. The Chicago Bulls had a run. <laughs> you have it's to be a- like, OJ's trial was like the 96 Bulls. It's one of the best teams of all time. Right. But, but, but there's also other teams like the Lakers and Casey Anthony's trial. <laughs> it just doesn't work. No. You know, biggest trial that I have faced is me and my wallet going back and forth, trying to figure out who's got the upper hand there. I've actually conquered my uh, biggest trial of all time, in case you saw on the, wa- the walk-in to the recording studio aka the my H- condo did the hoa finally give in they cut the grass oh, all you have to you. do is I, these airways just must be magical you just have to air your minor grievances and <laughs> someone sent them that episode <laughs> that would be very funny if there was just a like a mole inside yeah. the hoa they're like well we're getting just blasted by this gems of history podcast we have to cut that man's grass <laughs> these guys are almost rogan level yeah right <laughs> but yeah in case i was wondering grass Definitely cut. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go listen to the last episode. <laughs> yeah, where I air my minor grievances exactly. and things that mildly annoy me. Speaking of mildly annoying, welcome to the Gems of History podcast, that everybody. That was nice. That was I'm Jacob nice. Shop, and here with me is Evan Roosh, master of the HOA. Matt, yeah, the conqueror of the HOA. I feel like I need a gavel or something to bang <laughs> You're on like, the table, but that'll script the audio. I'm imagining you sitting on a throne wearing a robe with like a sword by your side, and the HOA is bowing at your feet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just all a bunch of like retirees yeah, who just it's like a 65 year old man <laughs> with oxygen attached like attached it's like no bow <laughs> could barely make it to his garage across the right. driveway exactly oh yeah good times how else how have you been otherwise evan besides destroying your rivals yeah besides conquering my enemies and putting their heads on <laughs> on pillars metaphorically metaphorically of course no things have been going good dog days of summer are here Literally, just yeah. dogs. But no, things have been good. How about you? You know, been busy, and mm-hmm. things are finally starting to wind down a little bit, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> we are three recordings away from me most likely being like, not now I'm going into soup mode. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny, because I'll talk to your fiance, and she will constantly refer to the fact that you always ask if you can make soup or not it was, when it's like 90 degrees outside. Yeah, we had a run, probably like a two-week run of 90s weather. I'm like, man, insert fiance's name. I would really love to make some soup. <laughs> hey, you know, it's never a bad time for soup. And then she shut that down. I'm like, what about dessert soup? She's like, 
what, like melted ice cream? I was going to say a dessert <laughs> soup thing. <laughs> nope, it's just melted ice cream. But yeah, yeah hey, I'm a, I'm a soupaholic. I apologize for say? nothing. You're, just, you're not the soup Nazi, though. No, no, I am not. Okay. I am not. Well, you're on your way there. Oh, give me five years. All right. <laughs> if, I, if I have to walk into your house and casually sh- side shuffle mm-hmm. and be like, here's the money yeah. <laughs> just and walk out. I run a I'm going to be a little annoyed. Right. I run a very efficient kitchen. Podcasting might be a little less free flowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, today we have quite an interesting one. I know we're going to talk about two specific trials. Uh, you have one and I have one. Very different time periods between the two of them. Yeah. So that'll yeah. be fun. Yeah, completely different time periods. But I think this is, well, first off, this topic one, is 1,000% inspired by me binge-watching Suits. You've been talking about this show a lot On lately. Netflix, and it's just, it's a really funny show, but it's it's supposed to be serious, but I find it hilarious because all the scenes start the same, and this isn't a spoiler. It's person A goes into person B's office. Person B says, not now. I don't have time for this. I'm working on a case. And person A is like, you son of a bitch. You'll listen to me right now. You know what you did. That's the entire show. <laughs> Every, like I've watched about six, five seasons of it. We're about to wrap up, I think, season six. That's the whole, that's every single scene. It, you know, <laughs> I'm not even if kidding. If you're trying to sell on me, sell me on watching this. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to do it. That's a very but, bare bones interpretation yeah. <laughs> of this Emmy award winning show. And it's like the fastest growing, like it's I was gonna the say, most views of all time on Netflix. It's so popular it's out of nowhere. But it's just so funny, the format, because it, it truly is like, hey, other lawyer, not now, lawyer. I got this big case to work on. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I'm really looking forward to. Diving into this topic, it's very interesting. Just, I think I say this every week with doing research, how much you really uncover about different aspects of the topic. And this one is definitely no exception. Yeah, like how the founder of Western philosophy never took baths or cleaned Ever. himself at all. <laughs> Ever. And his, uh, he actually wrote nothing down. Yep. Yeah, so he really know nothing about what he was actually like, really. <laughs> but there's just one. One just unnecessary side shot where it's like he was always described as profusely ugly. Yeah. Like, oh, his nose okay. was hideous. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's imagine? the one thing that we know for sure because he has one bust. <laughs> but again, the father of modern yeah. philosophy, of essentially all philosophy. Yeah. And then his students were like, actually, that's us. Yeah. <laughs> it does yeah. take the credit. But, but yeah. And then we're going to talk about uh, good old Southern religious fervor after that so in the united states yeah we definitely get like ranging from like the witch trials to just about any major trial in our nation's history a lot of it is due to a certain group's fervor whether that be colonial anti-witch fervor or in this case southern religious fervor yeah like and as i mentioned jokingly at the beginning there's so many quote-unquote trials of the century within the same century especially like 20th century there was Mm -hmm. a ton of them yeah like uh a couple that we won't talk about today but like there was all of the stuff from world war ii with the nuremberg Nuremberg, trials like first ever crimes against humanity yeah with specific people like adolf i think it was eichmann he had a Mm -hmm. really big one uh and then we had like before that we had leopold and loeb in chicago who were like one of the biggest true crime stories in america for years we had al capone there's all of these people the huge figures that were getting arrested specifically in america and i'm sure there was a 
plenty of them worldwide as well. But it also was the advent of radio mm-hmm. and television, so you could finally air all this stuff. So it, it is interesting to see how it's always been the same way. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's very true. And to your point with the beginning of just radio and these things getting national attention, we talked about it as well in our Hollywood episode where there's national news. So these trials that were happening in just a specific region, like Man Butcher's Three Families, is now national news. Except it's now- not just in it's not just in like little old Arkansas. Yeah, except now they put like a family on a jet ski with the, the caption that says oh, yeah, Man Murders right. Entire Family. It's yeah. like what are you doing here? Yeah. Oh my god, I'll never forget that. <laughs> it's yeah. insane to me that they or like the one time that I saw that a guy drove his Tesla off of a cliff on purpose trying to kill his family. But the first thing in the headline was about how the Tesla was fine. Yeah, how it's the like, Tesla's how, indestructible. Like, I see like, you. Why Elon. is that the point you put made <laughs> yeah. the emphasis on here? Right, right. Uh, but, but yeah, we uh we're gonna have a fun one today. Yeah, yeah. So I say let's just dive right in, huh? Let's do it. So, like I mentioned in the intro read, since we've had laws as a human species, we have broke said laws. Oh yeah. <laughs> Every single one ranging from I mean, regardless of creed or civilization that you uh hail from, whether it be like the Ten Commandments, whether it be the Magna Carta, whether it be, and I'll dive more into uh, this, the Code of Hammurabi. Yeah. We've had laws, and then we've had drastic punishments to make sure that people don't break these laws, but still break these laws. Well, and even like the laws of nature, like we, right. try, we try and break those all the time. So right. it's even like, things that are governed by scientific principles, we're like, can we change that? Right. Like, don't eat each other. Yeah, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah? Buffalo were just minding their own business, being their own natural phenomenon. And then we were like, we could kill all of you <laughs> in America. <laughs> the first Buffalo to hear a gunshot was like, that can't be good. That stinks. That, that might, that might do bad things to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was in the Buffalo prophecies that yeah. that would be the forbidden sound. <laughs> a story was foretold with a <laughs> Buffalo, but with the code of Hammurabi, it's very interesting diving into the actual code because it's over 300 different laws from ancient civilization. And what you may be thinking and what you were most likely taught was the Code of Hammurabi was actually the first ever written down or established laws for civilizations, but that's actually incorrect. They were actually just adaptations of early Sumerian and Akkadian laws. But of course, these were just the first ever written down laws. And a mind-blowing thing that came up in my research is that this bad boy wasn't discovered till 1901. Wow. Okay. So that means for a majority of, of uh, history, in like history classes, for example, the Code of Hammurabi wasn't like a vocab world. Sure. Excuse me, vocab word. Like they weren't really, it wasn't taught, people didn't really know about it, or people had no knowledge right. of it. So it was just very much, and what can only be deduced as like, we kind of don't know what they did for laws in ancient times because no one was doing uh, anything with the pyramids quite yet, or they were just starting to get into that. Right. And it wasn't a buzzword for a while. No. It wasn't a hyperlink on a website that took you to a different thing. <laughs> yeah, eight things you didn't know about the Code of Hammurabi. Exactly. And the Code of Hammurabi, not very generous with how people who broke the laws. Code of Hammurabi. Number, or excuse me, law number 53, if a man neglects to maintain his dike and does not strengthen it, 
and a break is made in his dike and the water carries away from the farmland, the man in whose dike the break has been made shall replace the grain which has been damaged. Rule 54, if he, if he is not able to replace the grain, they shall sell him and his goods and the farmers whose grain the water has carried away shall divide the proceeds from the sale. Nice. So if your dam breaks and you can't replace another farmer's uh, losses there, you get sold into slavery. Evan, please use the correct term. It's a dike. It's a duck? It's a dike. I did say dyke. I know, but you oh, said you said damn. It's a dyke, Evan. <laughs> I was putting it. Please, please use the correct terms. <laughs> <You're> right. <But laughs> you can't say dyke that many times. Yeah, me giggling a little bit. Right. But one twenty nine of the Code of Hammurabi. If the wife of a man is caught lying with another man, they shall bind them and throw them into the water. If the husband of the woman wishes to spare his wife, then the king shall spare his servant, wow. meaning spare the wife. So. Like you mentioned, extreme patriarchy. patriarchy. Yeah, right. <laughs> like extreme, extreme uh, consequences. Consequences. Thank you. Duh. Uh, <laughs> We're going to use that word a lot. Right. For breaking the laws uh, back in the day and how these proceedings, I mean, this wasn't in the time of trial by a jury of your peers. That doesn't come till later. What we see in a lot of the civilizations uh, ranging from BC, even up until ancient Athenia, which I'll get to in a second. It's pretty much just one magistrate, one governor, one city mayor, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of judge jury executioner. So in most cases there was party a who was most likely the one who was wronged and party B who was the person who did the alleged wronging, which is very interesting in the code of Hammurabi. And in ancient times, there was already the sense of innocent until proven guilty. For example, if someone, for, excuse me, if a man, and I quote here, if a man brings an accusation against another man charging him with murder but cannot prove it, the accuser shall be put to death. So even from the very start of laws, it was innocent until proven guilty, which still isn't the case in the modern day. But up until ancient Athenia, and this is where we'll get into the trial of Socrates a little bit. It really was just one judge, one jury, or excuse me, one judge was the jury who heard cases. I mean, if you want to uh, take a biblical example, uh, Solomon. I was just going to say that, yeah. Exactly. So you do have, or we do have many records of these, for lack of a better word, court proceedings uh, happening in ancient antiquity to cover people breaking laws. And again, the consequences were most likely fatal, or you would lose an eye, or a limb, or be thrown thrown into the water, and hopefully you're... Casual uh, things. Yeah, casual things, but... But yeah, if you don't know what the... the if you aren't biblically versed, like, Evan and I grew up religious, so we all heard this story many times, but Solomon basically was presented with the case where a woman claimed that a baby was hers, and then another woman said, no, it's actually my baby, and so to compromise... Solomon said, cut the baby in half and give half to each woman. <laughs> and when the one woman said okay, and the other woman cried and said no, Solomon gave it to the woman who cried and said no and said, that's her mom. Yep. So <laughs> it was it, just to show like the consequences are very dire if, if these things don't go a certain way. Yeah. And then later that night, Solomon bragged about it to his like 5,000 wives. His concubines. Yes. <laughs> But now we're going to transition to the first civilization, I guess Western civilization, we should say, that really adopted the trial by jury 
And doing the research into this, I mean, it's completely different than what we know as today. The most popular one of these trials was actually the trial of Socrates, which we mentioned, the trial of the father of all Western philosophy. Yeah, the dirty street beggar. (laughs) Yes, exactly, who happened to just ask a lot of questions. And made everyone mad. That's the funniest thing, is that his method of asking people questions, it was just him making people mad and then never counterpoints, no counterpoints from him, never explaining his side of the argument. It's just him asking people questions to get them mad. <laughs> He's literally the devil's advocate guy. Oh. Like if you've taken any, well, I mean, if you've taken, if you've just been in school, there's always that one person that raises their hand after you make a point and says, just to play devil's advocate here and then proceeds with nonsense. Can you explain yourself on that point? (laughs) Nope. No, I cannot. Okay. (laughs) It's just playing devil's advocate. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) But not much is really known about Socrates' early life. And I'm going to kind of dive into Socrates, his story as a whole, uh, just give like additional context on why he was even put on trial. And the only historical accounts actually come via his two most famous pupils, Plato and historian Xenophon, which I'm just going to call him X from now on. (laughs) Xenophon's a fun name. Oh yeah, it is very fun. And a lot of what we do know about Socrates was that he was an Athenian citizen, fought in service of the city in, excuse me, fought in service of Athens in the Peloponnesian War, so a war veteran, and was educated in the city as well. And if you're not familiar with, I guess, Athens at the time, uh, they're just inventing 95% of what we believe in the West in do, terms of philosophy and democracy. I, I do love that this is the equivalent of us having some huge war hero come back home and everyone just goes, God, is he hideous? <laughs> and then he comes up with like an entire foundation of philosophical thought afterwards, but we still just keep ragging on him for being ugly. Right, right. Like Jacob mentioned, very smart man, depending on who you ask. But dang, was he ugly! Well, he was allegedly, just, he was just a minimalist, so he didn't care for he didn't care about outward things. He didn't care about his appearance. He didn't care about his clothing. He didn't care about how much money he had. Mm-hmm. He literally lived in the street a lot of the times. People would open up these giant baskets, and he would just be sleeping inside of them and stuff. So he's a very interesting man. At yeah. least that's the stories we have of him. So yes, yes, one hundred percent. And you do have to keep each of those the source that we have with a certain grain of. Is that 100% true because Plato and Xenophon do point him, or excuse me, paint him as the protagonist in every single interaction that Socrates has? Well, and then Plato uses him as a metaphor for like everything in his writing for mm-hmm. a long time. So right. you can never know if it's just him using him as a literary device or if that was actually what Socrates was like. So, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, Socrates truly held no real regard to physical and material pleasures and affairs, and he often didn't bathe and was very indifferent to his physical appearance and roamed the streets of Athens barefoot, wearing only a robe. Now, now, if you did that in New York City, you'd be arrested. <laughs> right. When I do it, it's a bit much, Oh, Evan. you're being a flasher. Yeah. Just because it's your birthday doesn't mean you can't do whatever you want. <laughs> Just trying to be comfortable. Yeah. Uh, Politically, Socrates remained moderate and didn't really take sides between the two dueling political parties, the Democrats and the Athenian. By the number of accounts written 
of his life and of his death, it can be argued that Socrates was well known among the Athenian populations and, more importantly, in the general populace, well liked. Like I mentioned before, Plato, when writing about Socrates, made him the protagonist in all of his work, and in some of the more famous dialogues, Plato constructs Socrates as, the, as an entity whose direct lines of questioning at various other prominent characters of Athenian society represented a different demographic faction or, or excuse me, faction of the city. So he was, in Plato's writings, the man who took on all levels. He's Batman. Yeah. He's Batman. <laughs> <laughs> the city's eating itself. The city's eating itself alive. And it's really impossible for us to know whether Plato distorted the philosophical works of Socrates. Now I'm just imagining a man in ancient Athens running around in a bat <laughs> With a costume. bat costume. <laughs> Instead of the bat signal, it's just a big S or a, a big brain. <laughs> it's just a horse with a cape on it that he rides around. <laughs> right, right, right. In Plato's earlier works, the ones where Socrates, according to many scholars, seems more like Socrates adjacent, so not fully in the mind of Socrates, but let's call it Socrates light. Uh, the main tenet of his philosophy is the concept of ignorance, and one of the most famous lines attributed to Socrates is the paradoxical claim, I know only one thing that I know nothing. And people were like, wow, genius, banger, banger, <laughs> banger. I know only one thing that I know nothing. Put it on his tombstone. I'm pretty sure that was the, we were going to put that on the first ever Gents of History t-shirts. It was, yeah, it was something like that. <laughs> and then we were like, wow, that's an extra $15 to do. Mm, mm, no $15 pay- a shirt budget. for people. <laughs> yeah. With our zero. <laughs> yeah. No, with our uh, entire $0 ad revenue. <laughs> right, right. If you want to sponsor us, let us know. Yeah. Go sign up to the Patreon. Uh, though this was typically, or excuse me, though Socrates typically spoke very confusingly, this is the exact approach that Plato pro- portrays Socrates taking in just about every argument. And this is now known as the Soc- Socratic. 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 <laughs> Socratic. <laughs> and this is now known as the Socratic questioning. I'm leaving you banging your head on the microphone. <laughs> Where Socrates encounters various figures and characters from Athenian society and hilariously asks his opponents to simply answer the questions that he poses them with yes or with no and not to talk too much. So <laughs> he didn't give them a chance to elaborate in many of these cases. He'd be like, hey, sh- sh- had you sh- ever shut think- up, shut up. Yeah, right. Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. No elaboration, just yes or no. Socrates would typically assume nothing, starting with blatantly obvious questions and then hold a line of questioning to the different characters of Athenian society, holding their answers as absolute. So if, let's say, I answered a question of, all dogs are good, Socrates would be like, so all dogs are good? Even the ones that, like, bite people? or That's a terrible example. <laughs> or, like, <laughs> all people are good, then he would be like, even the ones that, like, pillage and destroy communities and... Who let their dikes overflow? <laughs> <laughs> or it'd be something as simple as like, is the sky blue? And then right. when, when the sky is like red at the at sunset or something, you'd be like, oh, so the sky's blue. Yeah. And just make people mad by doing that yes. all over. That's the biggest common occurrence in all these different arguments and all these different scenarios that Plato lays out about Socrates' conversations is that his opponents would become unbelievably frustrated. <laughs> 
And Socrates would just continue to point out logic flaws and inconsistencies and never add any information on his side. Yeah. So again, to your to your uh, example of the sky is blue, he'd be like, well, now it's red. And then just not elaborate why he thinks it's red or why it's not blue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he would just stick to the stick to the facts and would never actually counter argue himself. It's so funny. It's such an interesting way to approach meeting people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, can you imagine just getting approached at a restaurant? Oh. And someone asks you a question oh. like that and just constantly attacks your point and then doesn't explain it all. It'd be, so, it'd be infuriating. I probably have the same reactions when I see a magician mock up to me at oh. websites or websites and, at restaurants. Like whenever I see, like just so, just buddy holding a deck of cards walking towards my table, I'm like, "Don't you dare come over here! You, you and your men's warehouse discount jacket need to get away <laughs> yeah. from me. You and your sparkly jacket get yeah. away here." But a lot of these different characters in Athenian society that he would take on were alleged experts in a certain field. So he would only tackle, let's call it the end bosses of each level. Like he wouldn't mess around with, well, he did mess around with people in the streets quite often. But in a lot of these cases, they were supposed to be, the people that he was arguing with were representatives of the leaders of that field. So it'd be like Socrates going up to, let's say, Neil deGrasse Tyson and doing this kind of nonsense. Well, we'll actually, we have a, a perfect example, and the one that I'll cover in a little bit of this exact method of questioning by right. by one of the lawyers in the case. So, now really diving into the trial of Socrates. So, the formal accusation of Socrates was brought on by a man named Meletus, who was a contemporary, excuse me, a citizen of Athens, whom we really don't know a ton about. It's basically. He's just known in history as a guy that accused Socrates. <laughs> it's so funny that we know nothing else about this guy. You, this is this is like Pontius Pilate. It's, it really it's like is. He's the only thing you know him for is executing Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a bad thing to have on your resume. <laughs> right? You get up to the pearly gates, and Jesus himself is like, "What up, hey buddy? What up, P? <laughs> and then, uh, what yeah, a big P? And then we have Melitus who's standing right next to him. Right." But Socrates was officially charged with two counts, corruption of the Athenian youth and impiety, and was summoned to trial by jury. The impiety one to me is weird. I just don't understand why he got charged with that, because it's like, all he's doing is asking people questions. It's not like yeah. he's challenging religion or like saying the gods don't exist. You yeah. know, it's, it's just interesting that having thoughts was the virus in this case yeah he really never gives a counter argument also so he never really speaks for himself right in <laughs> any of these cases yeah he's never to his credit he stuck to his philosophy till he died till he died absolutely but just some background on what athenian courts were like not only did ordinary citizens comprise the juries in athens but they also controlled all aspects of the popular courts so there were three different courts. It was maritime court, it was popular court, and then there that was, was where all the cool kids were. That's where all the cool kids were exactly. And then there was a more uh, private court where, or excuse me, that's where like business dis- like disagreements were business, handled. Business, business, business. Yes. <laughs> In these courts of law, citizens were freeborn Athenian, or excuse me, jurors were freeborn Athenian men, no women and no slaves. And when 
or typically court cases can only be brought on man against man. Or the only people that were allowed to talk in court were men. So if I brought an allegation against a woman or against a slave, that person could not represent themselves or have someone, let's say a woman wants a woman to represent them. It was not allowed in Athenian courts. It is crazy to me that that practice didn't go away for nearly 2,000 years. Oh, yeah. They have... Humans held on to that one for a while. 1692, Salem, Massachusetts, the, the men did all of the talking. Yeah, <laughs> <pretty> we... <laughs> and then when we covered Elizabeth Bathory, it was like, oh, yeah. all of the men could bring court cases against each other. The women would just slap each other in the streets. <laughs> right, right. Oh my God, yeah. The popular courts heard the widest variety of cases, which were both public or private. So cases were considered public if they concerned the Athenian people at large, so like Socrates, because he's poisoning the Athenian youth. Whereas other disputes confined to individuals, so let's say Jacob, again, just wasn't monitoring his dike, and it got into my land. It happens to the best of us, you know. We could bring it up in same, excuse me, the same court, but it would just be a private case. And the most important characteristic of the popular courts was that the role of the jury, or excuse me, the number of jurors, because it could range anywhere from 201 to 501 jurors. That just seems excessive. That's an, that's an unbelievable, that's a TED talk that you it's have to do. It's the House of Representatives. It's the House of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go into Congress every time you steal a goat. What an <laughs> inconvenience. Uh, but the jury selection in ancient Athens was randomized and democratic, and in any given year, a citizen was allowed to volunteer to serve as a juror. From the group of citizens that volunteered, 6,000 of them would be chosen randomly to serve as jurors. I love that they volunteered to do it, and now when we get jury duty summons, we're like, ah! Like, mother F! <laughs> rather go shoot myself. Yeah. After the group's of citizens that were volunteered were chosen. Every day that the courts were in session, the number of jurors needed were randomly chosen from this group. And due to this randomization experiment, uh, it implemented or gave way, excuse me, it was designed to prevent the bribery of jurors. So if a rich man was brought to court, he couldn't pay off all 501 jurors. And it's randomly selected, so you don't even know who to talk to. Exactly, exactly. A typical trial in Athenian popular court consisted of speeches by both the plaintiff and the defendant and a vote by the jury. No trial could last more than one day, and both parties represented themselves again unless a woman or slave was involved, in which case a citizen man would speak on their behalf. But it's very interesting that in one day, or excuse me, you only have one day to prove your case, whereas modern times, you typically have weeks. Yeah, exactly. And the turnaround time was also very quick. Like, typically now, you get accused of something, a judge sets, like, a court date, there's usually weeks in between. Not so much with this. You get accused of something, and then days after, you would be in court in front of 501 of your peers. And like there's not a like separate trial for the conviction. There's mm-hmm. not a trial for the sentencing. It's all in one. It's just the same thing or everything gets done all at the same time. But it is interesting too that everyone just had to do the Ted Bundy method and defend themselves. <laughs> right. Right. 
Um, if the defendant was found guilty and there was no set penalty, the plaintiff and defendant would each propose a penalty and the jury would then vote to pick one of the two. And the jury's decision was final with no opportunity for appeal. So if I got, or excuse me, if 501 people accused me of, again, not maintaining my dyke, and I said, hey, I would just like to pay $50 to repair said dyke, and the other person death. said death, the jury would vote again <laughs> on what the proper punishment was. Oh, that is hilarious. And according to Plato's account of Socrates' trial, it followed the same exact method as what I just overlaid, where both sides explained essentially their side. Evidence was presented. There were people that came forward and spoke on behalf of both parties. But Socrates was still found guilty by only 30 votes. And regarding the sentencing, Socrates joked that he should actually be sentenced to receive free meals for the rest of his life and no one laughed no one laughed <laughs> so it's, uh, that is tough not getting a single ha even though everyone liked him they're like buddy talk about like this 12. is not the time right right like plato's in the back like my guy <laughs> like, yeah, just, shush. except this is like the entire generation of teenagers coming up now right <laughs> it's like if they were on death row they would make the same joke <laughs> <laughs> but and after the joke did not land. Socrates offered to pay a fine of 100 drachmae, which was the uh, currency at the time. Plato, who was of more substantial means, and a group of his peers offered to pay the state a sum of 3,000 drachmae on Socrates' behalf. Melitus, as you can guess, suggested that Socrates be put to death. And when it was taken to a vote, it was decided that there would be an execution. It's wild. Very wild. That jury was just. That jury was. They pissed. had to be so done with him. <laughs> it's very. I didn't mention this before, but a lot of, a lot of jurors, due to the randomization, they were typically poorer and older. So let's say Socrates is just primarily speaking and like has a young following. That most likely wasn't the people that were representative on this court. Sure. Or excuse me, on the on this jury. Just because of the uh, the uh, randomization, also you had to volunteer to do this, and who has a lot of time on their hands? Yeah, old people, old people, and people that don't have jobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but to wrap up the story, the seventy year old philosopher took his punishment, drank poison, or excuse me, hemlock poison, and died of paralysis shortly after, and did not flee the city. A lot of his Students and pupils said, hey, man, just get out of here. He did not. Good for him. He, yeah. really, he really just stuck to his guns until he died. He truly stuck to his guns. Yeah, that sounds like a terrible way to die. It Complications be- from hemlock poisoning include central nervous system depression, respiratory failure, acute rhabdom- rhabdomolosis, I don't know what that means, or a breakdown of damaged skeletal muscle. Yeah. Or renal failure. Oh, no, this sounds awful. That just sounds like a terrible time. <laughs> Coma, kidney failure. Right. <laughs> but uh, j- just provide just a small additional context. Athens lost the Peloponnesian War, so at the time they were governed by a puppet government installed by Sparta. Yeah. Which the rulers were dubbed the 30 Tyrants, and <laughs> their main goal, alleged main goal, was to unwind 
the democratic structure of Athens, so their entire identity, and Socrates was a big part of that identity. So naturally, they were going to come after Socrates. I wish we would have covered the 30 tyrants when we did our Spartans episodes. We, I guess we could still do that sometime, but yeah, we got they, they sound pretty intense. <laughs> Very. It's estimated that they kill close to 5% yeah. of the Athenian population. <laughs> yep. Intense stuff. Sparta just didn't do anything halfway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Socrates just asked them one too many questions. They're like, I don't have the answer. Punch you in the face. Yeah, exactly. Or kill you. All we do is war and sex. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he did not have the best end. I, I mean, I guess... It- in his eyes, that was probably the way it was always going to happen. Yeah, I think he knew that I mouth off quite often. There's going to be one guy that I do the wrong questions to, and he's going to get real mad. Yeah, it's when you just talk to like a meathead, like a gym meathead. Yeah, <laughs> you just exactly. make them confused, and they get mad, and, just... <laughs> and they punch the wall. And they punch the wall, exactly. exactly yeah, but we're going to bring it from ancient times back to more modern day. We're going to talk about a 20th Ooh. century trial in America. Specifically in Tennessee, it is known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. And this was, as far as trials of the century go, I think this one probably lays a good claim to it just Mm -hmm. because of how relevant it still is today. And despite the fact that it was really just a showcase for two guys who were really popular to talk off at each other, it ended up becoming just this overblown sensation. Yeah, very excited to dive into this one. For those of you that don't know, at the heart of it, the Scopes Monkey Trial was a matter of what limits were allowed to be put on free speech. But the sensation that it became was a legal battle that stood for religion, education, scientific merit, and the origin of humankind. A to little, name a few big topics. A little bigger than it started. It was a fist fight of words between two of the most famous speakers in America about whether Darwin's theory of evolution should be allowed to be taught in schools amidst a proposed law that would ban the practice in Tennessee schools. It was a national media event at a small town that became a landmark case for the, for the American country. But it all started with a few people who wanted to make a little money. As these <laughs> as, things typically yep. do. <laughs> But before we get into the trial proper, it's important to know what America was like in this time period. It was the early 1920s, and in the early 1920s, especially in the South, there was a lot of concern that public morals were being corrupted. The Jazz Age was in full swing, which was a main point of contention for those who claimed to be on the moral high ground. They were like, man, there's too much saxophone in music these days. (laughs) There's too much swinging too much. Yeah, there's too much skiddy boom bop. For for this man, it's about apparently. the notes you don't play. Yeah. <laughs> as headlines across the nation express the dangers of jazz, among other things, such as one from the aptly titled Kansas City Kansan in January of 1922 that had the title, quote, Vampires, Jazz, Joyrides, and Turkish Immorality. Wow, the Turks got a little side shot Don't there. understand why that one was in there, but I didn't look. So. Turkish immorality. Well, I guess this was just after World War One. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> they were... <laughs> but people began to make moves to stop the spread of this supposed virus that was corrupting their communities. Skiloobop! It didn't take very long for jazz to become connected to drugs, criminality, and seduction. Oh, gosh. 
So things haven't changed. No, it's the prototype of the metal music makes you worship the devil and stuff like that. It it's pretty much a proto satanic panic and right a afterthought of the Salem witch trials. It all happens like every eighty years or so, something like this pops up. Oh man! So that we're means, get, we're getting there. That means we're due. For yeah, the next it's one. it's coming up. So jazz, after becoming connected to drugs and all of that stuff began to associate women with vampires. Aside from in headlines, they began to call women who were living the jazz lifestyle vampires and displaying them as irresistibly seductive, exotic, and dangerous. Ooh, dangerous, you say. Those flappers are dangerous. Man. In an address at the University of Wisconsin in 1920... Shout out, go Bucky. Catherine Willard Eddy of the Young Women's Christian Association said, quote, We are in deadly fear of the jazz devil, the demon which is consuming the country, end quote. And jazz devil is capital J, capital D, jazz devil. The jazz devil. Honestly, great name for an album. The proper term for the jazz devil. Tremendous name for an album. Honestly, it is. In more telling terms, some described jazz as savage and comparable to, quote, squalls of jungle beasts in the mating season, end quote, and another quote, monstrous jazz rhythm of the primitive savage, end quote, which in veiled words basically said that it was bad because it had African-American roots. I was about to say, that's that's not like racist undertones i think that's just one of the most racist things i've ever heard yep 1920s america (laughs) oh my god so basically they tried to veil this culture war as it's the music yeah (laughs) so but amidst the intense fear of the jazz monster some areas of the country moved to stop that moral decay by introducing laws that aimed to bring back a sense of wholesome family life and religious focused upbringing Even though the cultural elite were pushing for advancements in every avenue of life after World War II, such as new discoveries in science and a more relaxed attitude towards personal liberties, some small town folks sought a return to a simpler life. So basically, after the high of helping to end World War I, all of the big shots saw a huge opportunity to advance not only technology and industry but pretty much every aspect of what we now know as modern life yeah they were on kind of a high like an adrenaline high after that one and all these country farmers didn't get that same memo no not one bit in order to stop the spread of these new ideals in the north from reaching their children many in the southern parts of the united states especially in the area known as the bible belt began to take concrete steps forward So in 1925, in the state of Tennessee, they passed what was known as the Butler Law. The language of the law banned, quote, any theory that denies the story of divine creation of man as taught in the Bible, and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals, end quote. And this, of course, included the theory of evolution that Darwin had proposed over 60 years earlier. So basically saying you can't teach evolution in schools. Right. They're saying you can't teach any other belief other than the Bible, which is not very much a separation of state in my ears. Yeah, exactly. Especially church and state. I mean, private schools do what you want. Right. But public schools, that's public school. Yeah. <laughs> it's, for, it's supposed to be a state-run organization. So. Right. It's very, very interesting that this still gets debated 
in a lot of cases today. Right. So in the minds of lawmakers in Tennessee, the law was to be self-enforcing. They expected the teachers to follow along with the law, because after all, the teachers were employed by the state and, as such, should listen to what the state had to say. And if they were told to stop teaching any subjects, they were supposed to stop. However, there was a select few in a small blip of a town in Tennessee called Dayton who were encouraged to voice their opinions against the Butler Law. The American Civil Liberties Union, who was, which was a relatively new organization at this time period and is now, well, from this point forward, call it the ACLU, had begun to run ads in local Tennessee newspapers to ask teachers to stand up against the Butler Law, which they saw as an affront to free speech, and rightfully so. Right, yeah, they're literally controlling what you can teach your kids. Exactly. Upon seeing these ads, some of the local town leaders in Dayton decided that they should indeed fight the law. However, it wasn't because of anything to do with evolution or religion. It was because they saw it as a good way to bring a bunch of people into the small town of Dayton and give it a financial boost. <laughs> it's all about the dollars. It is. It, this is what business, if businessmen see an opportunity, they take that up, especially in the Roaring Twenties. Hey, if people are coming here to protest this, they'll stop at the diner. <laughs> <laughs> they might destroy a couple businesses, but... The ones the that don't, yeah, <laughs> the ones that don't get destroyed, increase the sales. Exactly. So these town leaders met in Robinson's local drugstores, which was owned by the president of the school board, and kind of decided to come up with a plan. Eventually, they decided that they would need a good teacher to challenge the law for their cause because they weren't teachers; they couldn't challenge the law directly by teaching. So <laughs> they had to find a a surrogate who would be blamed for them. Right, a third party. Yeah. Yes. The ACLU had said that they would protect anyone who fought against the law, so whoever was chosen would be safeguarded against any major consequences. So for their man, they chose a man named John Thomas Scopes, who was the local f high school football coach and substitute biology teacher. Scopes did indeed believe the law to be unjust, but there was only one problem. He had never taught, nor did he know, the theory of evolution. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite part of it. He's like, I, I never taught this, but it's bad. <laughs> he, it was said that he had conversations with students who had explained it to him. And he was like, well, gosh darn it, how do you know all this? <laughs> They're like, it's in the book right. that he's, you taught out of. He's like, that's a great point. But... I have to get back to drawing a place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So despite having substituted for a few days in the biology class at the high school, he was barely acquainted with the theory of evolution. But regardless, the local town leaders were able to convince him to fight the law as their representative. John Scopes was arrested on May 7th, 1925, and was charged with the teaching of the theory of evolution, beginning what the ACLU and town leaders figured would be a test trial that wouldn't take very long to complete. But in short order, the case became one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century. And for those of you asking, why did he get arrested and just take it? They needed to not fight the... Uh, actual arrest because mm -hmm. that would ensure a quick trial right and that was the whole purpose of this they weren't expecting this to be a big to do in the town they just wanted to try this out and see what they could get away with pretty much right that's that's why they nominated the guy that doesn't even know the theory exactly like, he's the high school coach everyone likes him right. maybe they'll just be nice and easy 
Arriving in Dayton to defend Scopes in the case of the state of Tennessee versus John T. Scopes was the famous criminal defense attorney, Clarence Darrow. After leaving his job as a lawyer for a railroad company, Darrow had made a name for himself by defending criminal cases in which the accused stood no chance of winning. His job, as he saw it, was to save the condemned from being executed by the state. He was pretty much one of the earliest proponents of the anti-death penalty movement. Mm -hmm. He saw it as there was too many people getting unjustly accused and executed by the state and basically being murdered by the state. And he's not wrong. That does happen way more than we like to admit it does. So he was kind of on the early forefront of that fight. And that's why he left his job as a corporate lawyer and became kind of just a good guy in the whole sense of being a lawyer. Right. Yeah. He's like, he was one of the first people to realize, man, we are not batting a thousand on no, these, no, in these death penalty not sentences. So yeah, it's, you got to give a hand to him, like leaving a corporate lawyer job, probably very well paying to then represent the underrepresented yeah. in a lot of these cases. Very, he would, very big kudos. And he would represent everybody. Like yeah. He would represent convicted murderers. He would represent dirty businessmen. He would represent mafia people. Like All across the board, he would represent anyone. And for his work, he gained notoriety as the attorney for the damned. So that's the best possible nickname for a defense lawyer but at the same time it's like you're defending people that have no no shot so yeah. it's a kind of a double-edged sword yeah you're probably not gonna win but you'll get like 75 percent of a win exactly but the year before he had successfully defended convicted murderers leopold and loeb in another quote-unquote trial of the century in chicago and saved them from the death penalty and just he this He's really a, an early example of bringing in experts in different scientific mm-hmm. fields to argue for his side of the case. And that's how he got Leopold and Loeb off, saying, like, they're psychiatrically all fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't be put to death because they can't be held culpable. They're just insane monsters. So, But it, it, it was a very different approach to being in a courtroom at the time. Yeah, instead of going off vibes, he went off people yeah. that know psychiatrics. Or studying head shapes. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. Despite this, he still didn't charge exorbitant fees for his practice and instead looked only to ease his conscience by helping people. He decided to take on the case in Dayton because he was a believer in the free love movement of the 20s, which basically stood against the notion that men, and especially women, were to have sex only for procreation and not to derive pleasure from it. So, Darrow himself was a known womanizer who had two wives and even more mistresses throughout his lifetime. So, it's, it's kind of just him saying, I want to fight against a religious institution that's trying to convict a man who really didn't do that much wrong. It's like, I just want to do what I want to do, man, <laughs> which is the premise of America. Like, let us do what we want to do. Exactly. But another, perhaps bigger reason he took the case was because of who was on the other side. Leading the prosecution was William Jennings Bryan, a three-time presidential candidate and former Secretary of State, who was one of the leading speakers on Christian values and a self-proclaimed Bible expert. He was no. That's a tough. That's the tough prosecution attorney. Yeah, yeah. No, this high school football coach is like the, a presidential candidate three times. Three times he didn't win any times. Does he suck? Yeah. <laughs> no. Very good. So he was known for his fiery and spellbinding speeches on the Bible and was basically a national celebrity for his speeches. 
Darrow had been at one point a member of the same political party that Brian had been a part of, so he he knew the man pretty well. He'd even given a speech on his behalf at one point. But in his mind, Brian was too religious and basically too stupid to run a major political party. So when Brian got the presidential nomination, not once, not twice, but three times, it put a bad taste in Darrow's mouth. Yes. So that was pretty much where their rivalry began, and when Darrow knew that Brian was going to be on one side of the court case, he pretty much knew that he had to be on the other yeah, side. Yeah, he's like, I want that ass. Exactly. <laughs> the two men arrived in Dayton as superstars. Brian was welcomed with banners that said, read your Bible, and he began to immediately give his famous speeches to anyone that wanted to hear them, while Darrow, on the other hand, was actually also welcomed as a celebrity. Because the town of Dayton knew that with both of them there, the trial was going to be the event of a lifetime. (laughs) The diners are going to be sold straight out of bacon and eggs. Oh, out of everything. Yeah. (laughs) In the heat of the summer of 1925, where temperatures were consistently around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or for our people that don't live in America, 38 degrees Celsius. Many that were, was very nice of you. To that. <laughs> I was like, ah, I might as well. Many were risking the heat exhaustion to witness the spectacle of their lives. The hot dog vendors kept people fed, while ice vendors sold chunks of ice from their trucks to help people stay cool in the immense heat. <laughs> just, putting a, just putting a chunk of ice on your Sunday's best. Like, <laughs> On the back of the neck, like, man, is it hot in here? Can't oh, wait to see how this trial goes. A lot of the back of a box truck. Like, <laughs> hey, business was booming. Gotta do what you gotta do. Trained circus monkeys were brought into town as entertainment, a nod to Darwin's theory that humans evolved from some sort of primate. Steers were roasted in pits behind the courthouse. It pretty like, much, well, it was just a full-blown festival. This isn't, this isn't an SEC football game tailgate. Like, is yeah. this where they got the idea for this? This is just a, it's a, it's a carnival. Yeah, it really is. And there's just this immensely important court case going on in the background. To decide the future of education. Yeah. Boarding houses all around town were packed, and 100 reporters even spent the night in a local hardware store that ended up doubling as a press room. So what started as a big local spectacle had pretty much become a national sensation at this point. Live radio broadcasts were sent out from the courtroom for the first time ever, and newsreel cameras were set up to record the whole thing. In the words of the Baltimore Sun, this was a case representing modern science against country bumpkin ignorance, and the media loved it. Oh my gosh, yeah, they loved this one. Like the first, especially this being public access, like nationally televised, nationally, excuse me, nationally broadcasted and like recorded. Yeah. Like this is, this probably has the front runner first, like case of the century. Yeah. And it, it it's funny because the Leopold and Loeb case was actually recommended to be the first live broadcast mm-hmm. on Radio 1, but there, there was so much talk of the two of them having sex with each other that they knew a bunch of kids would listen to, and they said, no, 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 we're not putting that on the radio. So, Zoink, Scoop, yeah, that so, is... So let, let's, let's talk about schools instead. Yes, please. So usually in Darrow's cases, it took him days to select the juries that he would use. But in Dayton, he knew his job was going to be pretty easy on that front, for better or for worse. Darrow knew that it would be impossible to find an impartial jury in a battle of religion versus science, especially in the South, and when he asked one potential juror if he knew what evolution was, the man replied no, because he couldn't read. 
And when asked why he couldn't read, whether it was just because his eyesight was bad and he physically couldn't read, the man said, I'm just not educated. Oh. But Daryl wasn't disheartened by this. He actually knew that this meant that the man was pretty much as honest as they come. (laughs) Even though the community was religious, Dayton wasn't a cesspool of religious fanatics, as some have painted it out to be, but rather it was a town of farmers and small-town folk who went to church on Sundays alongside the local businessmen who were boosting the side of John Scopes. It just so happened that evolution wasn't just a foreign concept to these church-going folk, it was a challenge to their beliefs, and that's what made it more intensified. In this case, it only took Darrow two and a half hours to choose his jury, which eventually consisted of 11 men of various religious denominations and one non-religious man. Oh, (laughs) all men. In the words of one reporter, quote, such a jury, in a legal sense, may be fair, but it would certainly be spitting in the face of reason to call it impartial, end right. quote. Yeah, because they are all predominantly religious in one way or not. Exactly. But in the end, that was kind of fine with Darrow because his cause wasn't really to defend Scopes, but to attack Brian's fundamental religious crusading. <laughs> Yes. It was all about attacking Brian. Yeah, like he used like the words of like this is a inquisition, this is a witch hunt, like you know the classics. Exactly. But it's very interesting also, like if you go on YouTube and type in this trial, there's actually legit footage like we mentioned before. It's an absolutely packed courthouse. Oh yeah. And, and they're all in suits and all sweating like crazy. It's a hundred degrees. Yeah. Air conditioned, yeah. uh, no fans in the courthouse. I cannot imagine. <laughs> oh, thank God for AC. <laughs> yeah, seriously. From the beginning of the trial, Darrow knew that Scopes was guilty. He had outright broken the law by mm. teaching evolution in the state. So Darrow's goal wasn't to prove that he hadn't broken the law, but that the law itself was broken to begin with. It was unconstitutional. Darrow brought a team of scientific experts in to aid in this cause by testifying on the validity of Darwin's theories. And in effect, he was hoping that he could embarrass the judge and the jurors for their bigotry and superstition against science and rationality. So, it was more so ad hominem than it was an actual scientific basis. It's very interesting that he went with that approach because just about never will religious people, let's say vehemently religious people, contradict their beliefs no matter how much you put in front of them. Exactly. In the courtroom, Darrow and Brian went back and forth at each other in front of the jury, who were sweltering in the heat wave within that courtroom. Brian and the prosecution presented their cases, simply calling Scopes students to the stand and asking if they had heard Scopes teaching evolution in the classroom. Pretty much the only question he really needed to ask anybody, Mm -hmm. because if the answer is yes, he's guilty. Yep, bada bing, bada boom. However, he also took the opportunity to attack anyone who had anything to say negatively about the Bible. Yeah. He was going to get, yeah, he was going to get his, his, uh, his speeches out no matter what. Yes, he was. Brian continued his impassioned speeches in the courtroom as well as on the steps outside the courtroom and nobody stopped him. His was a crusade of political causes pushing his populist agenda and popular reform ideas as well as his religious intentions. In the end, the judge put a major roadblock in the way of Clarence Darrow in the defense. He stated that the trial was not about the fundamental nature of humans or the constitutionality of the Butler Law, but about whether Scopes had broken said law. Yes, he made it 
He wouldn't let him just, or excuse me, he wouldn't let the defense just rattle on and make it this big spectacle. Exactly. He put a big kibosh on that. Even though he does. Yes. <laughs> At the end of the first week, the prosecution rested its case with Brian giving a rousing hour-long summation of their side of the case, winning over basically everyone in attendance, including Scopes himself. Yeah. He was a very well-spoken man. By the time he was finished, Scope stated that he was, quote-unquote, mesmerized. News reporters sent out statements saying that there was little that Clarence Darrow could do at this point. But Darrow was stubborn, <laughs> and he wasn't willing to give up that easily. And he wasn't going to lose to that guy. Not that guy. He lost the presidency three times. Thrice. <laughs> On the seventh day of the trial, Darrow was prepared to present his side of the case. But in an undeniably human turn of events, the court had to be moved outside when the floor of the courtroom buckled under the pressure of all the participants to the trial. Oh, yeah. You know that courtroom was like the first ever building built in that city. I mean, after all, it was said that over 600 people attempted to pack into the courtroom each day to witness the proceedings. That's insane. The judge then demanded that benches and chairs be placed outside of the courthouse in front of a grandstand. Darrow, once they were outside, then dropped a legal bomb. He stated that if he couldn't call his experts to defend the validity of evolution to the stand, then he would call a witness to testify to the validity of the Bible to the stand. The defense called William Jennings Bryan to the stand. Which, what a move. Like Absolutely insane. Everyone a, is like, what? It's an extremely bold move because this man throughout the entire trial even convinces Scopes, the man on trial, yeah, of his point. This guy is, in the United States, the guy for the Bible. Right. <laughs> so, right. very bold to ask him to come to the stand, but Daryl knew what he was doing. The prosecution team objected, but Brian himself was more than willing to take on the opportunity. Yeah, that man is not one to back down. The judge said that if Brian had no issues with the proposition, then the court didn't either. For nearly two hours, Darrow hammered against Brian, asking him to explain some of the more fantastic stories from the Bible, such as Jonah and the whale. Darrow asked him how long the earth had existed. 6,000 years. Darrow then asked him to explain the Chinese, who had been around longer than 6,000 years. Well, if the Bible says 6,000 years, then it's been around for 6,000 years. The whole time, the national radio was broadcasting the entire back and forth to a captivated national audience. In the words of one witness who was at the trial and who was 12 at the time of the trial, she said that she was irate at Darrow because he was clearly attacking Brian and the Bible. Yeah, he was going in on him. But eventually, Brian said something that would stun the witnesses. This is where Evan, me and you are going to do a little tete-a-tete acting back and forth. You're going to be William Jennings Bryan, the three-time loser. Hmm. And I'm going to be Clarence Darrow. Does he have a southern accent? Yes. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Sure. Yes. Well, I said I said. Interpret it as you will. Hmm. This is going to be awful. Okay, let's do it. When asked about the biblical creation, Brian and Darrow had a back and forth that eventually got to the point when Darrow asked about the length of the quote-unquote days mentioned in the story of creation. Do you think those were literal days? My impression is they were periods, but I would not attempt to argue against anybody who wanted to believe in literal days. Have you any idea of the length of those periods? No, I don't. Do you think the sun was made on the fourth day? Yes. 
and they had evening and morning without the sun. I am simply saying it is a period. At this point, Darrow then reads the entire Bible passages about the creation word for word, and then continues with, And they had the evening and morning before that time for three days, or three periods. All right, that settles it. Now, if you call those periods, they may have been a very long time. They might have been. The creation might have been going on for a very long time. It might have continued for millions of years. In his answer, Brian had inadvertently agreed to one of the main focuses of Darwinism. Oops. <laughs> so, and this is a great example of the Socratic method of questioning that we uh-huh. talked about earlier. So he, cause he doesn't explain his side. He just keeps asking him more and more questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's uh, when you're confirmed, or I should say when you're a self-confirmed Bible expert and you change your answer from 6,000 years to it could have been a million or excuse me, millions of years on national <laughs> broadcasting. The defense definitely, like, that's the most perfect line of questioning I think I've ever heard in my yeah, life. It's, it's int- they, you can find the entire transcripts of these online. It's like 300-something mm-hmm. pages. But I read through this section of it from, not from the beginning, but from the middle of it until it got to this point. Mm-hmm. The entire line of questioning is ingenious. It's, right. it's crazy to see how Darrow works around all of these very touchy subjects and makes it so that Brian's on his heels. It really is like a boxer who just is working the body for 11 rounds and in the 12th round just bunches him in the face. For exactly. Brian's lack of scientific knowledge undercut his credibility and Darrow had finally broken his opponent and turned the case in his favor. However, even though the people in town knew that something big had happened in this cross-examination, nobody knew what it meant, because Mm. pretty much nobody knew what evolution was. Yeah, they really, like, looking back at it now, our reaction is, holy cow, he just knocked, like, he just destroyed the prosecution. Punched his teeth out. But everyone's like, what's a million? (laughs) Yeah, because it was a huge thing. Everyone reacted, and Mm. it was a big thing whole what it just happened something happened ah, i missed it it's like a dog when Show the doorbell the rings yeah. <laughs> the next day the eighth day of the trial when everyone reconvened in the courthouse once again albeit with limited spectators due to the fact that the floor was about to collapse the judge ordered that brian's testimony from the previous day be expunged from the record after all, despite how entertaining it was, it had nothing to do with the trial at hand as the judge had set it up. The case was then handed over to the jury, who took only nine minutes to convict John Scopes guilty, and he was fined a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean when it's all when it all comes down to like the actual trial, the actual meaning of the trial, the actual meaning behind the arrest of the defendant, it's like yes, he did teach evolution. So you can't really be too mad at the judge and no. jury for this because, yeah. And, Dar- and Daryl knew that going in, that right. he was guilty. So right. that wasn't what his fight was about. He just wanted to make sure that he could get under Brian's skin and prove that he was better. Right. So, and he did. He did do that yeah, <laughs> at the end def- of the day. That's so petty. I love that. So the jury had done their job correctly. William Jennings Bryan stayed in town preaching after the trial, but only five days afterwards, he died during a nap after a large meal because... After all, he was a pretty heavy diabetic, so 
it made sense that he would probably die this way. <laughs> he just wanted one last like big shebang. He was yeah. also what seventy. Yeah, he was point, getting right? close to seventy. Yeah, I think it was like yeah, mid sixties. But the same reporter that said that the the uh, jury was fair but impartial that I quoted from earlier, he said that they finally got the son of a bitch. Yeah, because <laughs> he did not like William Jennings Bryan. <laughs> Eventually, Darrow appealed Scope's guilty verdict, but it wasn't for two years that the verdict would be overturned by the state Supreme Court. Not because of the evidences in the case, but because the judge had been in the wrong to impose the fine, which was the duty of the jury. Again, kind of semantics, but sure. Yeah. The state refused to retry the Scope's trial, wanting to leave the whole thing in the past. (laughs) For good reason. Yep. After the trial, Scopes never taught high school again, instead going to graduate school and becoming a geologist, and shunned any public attention from the trial. The trial is reenacted every year in Dayton. The anti-evolution laws continued for decades after the Scopes trial, with the ACLU finally winning in court in 1968 in the Epperson v. Arkansas case, which declared the law an unconstitutional violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, basically saying it's against free speech. Yeah, it's like you can let you have to let people teach things. Yeah. Like scientific beliefs. So in the end of the day, Daryl lost this trial, but it was a huge stepstone for specifically the ACLU to get their foot in the door and kind of see how they should challenge this going forward. It was a test trial at the end of the day. Right. So it was just the biggest test trial in the history of the United States, pretty much. Yeah, and it took decades to get to where to excuse me, get to the point where actual change was made yeah 43 years after the original trial at the end of the day the scopes monkey trial is a uniquely american court case pitting a staunch creationist rhetoric against the advancing ideas of scientific knowledge in a legal setting it speaks to america's cultural history in both an intensely fascinating sense as well as a distressing one because now with places like florida attempting to ban ap psychology in the state under ron DeSantis. Due to its discussions on gender and sexual orientation, the Scopes Monkey Trial speaks clearer than ever to the concept of scientific advancement being challenged in the wake of stubborn traditionalists, lending the possibility for history to once again repeat itself right before our eyes. Yeah, I imagine in our lifetime that same exact type, or excuse me, the same exact type of court case will be occurring for one of the many things that we have going on in our country. I mean, we just had the whole thing with Roe versus Wade getting Mm -hmm. overturned. So it's not that far off that we'll have another trial that is pretty much on the same lines as this. Yes. Yeah. And it'll be all on TikTok. Exactly. (laughs) And none of this is us like arguing, saying evolution's right or religion's right or religion's wrong or anything like that. We're just saying that this is a, it's a big landmark court case for a reason you know it speaks to a lot of values that could easily be challenged at any point and someone's got to step up to defend those values and then if in the case of this butler law it was clarence darrow and william jennings bryan who were two of the biggest celebrities in the country which is very interesting that it became a celebrity trial essentially like yeah if you ask who are the main participants in this trial Scopes' name is in the trial, but you kind of forget that Scopes is even like a part of it. Right. It's called the Scopes Trials or the Scopes Monkey Trials, but it was Daryl V. Bryan. Yes. Yes. But in the octagon. In the uh, yeah, 70 year old versus 70 year old. Yeah, 68 year old man. And 
Darryl, well, that's what our presidential elections are now. So. Yeah, that is true. Darrow did kind of he he continued on in legis or in uh, court cases and in being a lawyer for a few years after this, and then he kind of set it aside in the early 30s. He just took on like small cases here and there, but mm-hmm. he was very ahead of his time on a lot of the thinking that he had, saying basically like. There's a lot of stuff that's wrong with the laws that we have, and we need to make sure that we stick to the principles that we founded this country on and not stray too far from the fact that legal matters are supposed to be separated from a lot of other things. So, Which, again, this court case happened in the 20s. What a very bold stance to have. Right. It's it's pretty insane. In the Bible Belt, nonetheless. Like one of his friends wrote a paper, I believe he's a psychologist, basically saying, People should be allowed to have sex for pleasure. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to just be for procreation. And he submitted his paper and it got rejected. But Clarence Darrow read it and he was like, yeah, this is all so right. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just way ahead of his time progressively. Right, so. right, right. But absolutely fantastic trial coverage. I don't know. Absolutely <laughs> Trials fan- of the century. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic episode today, as always. And if you want to continue the conversation with us, you can check us out on all of our socials on X now. Oh, fuck X. At- Elon Musk is ruining it. <laughs> yeah, I keep on opening Venmo on accident. That's uh, <laughs> think that's Twitter. I think there's so many people that are just changing the icon in their phone back to the bird. Right. <laughs> it's so funny. But you can find us on X at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. You can also find us on TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon at Gems of History Podcast. Just type that in and you'll find your boys. Yeah, just go to www.patreon.com slash gems of history podcast or download the app. Search it on there. You can sign up there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's us. That's us everywhere. I also love that, going back to the X thing, I love that he just made it into like the most questionable icon for anything. Just like, son, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> no, I swear it's Twitter. It really is Twitter. I no, promise. I swear. So yeah, you can find us everywhere. But that's all we got for you guys this week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know it was a, a very fascinating look into... Uh, there's a lot of court cases we could have covered, but I think these two really worked hand in hand with one another, going back to how Socrates ran his whole schemes. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it ended up working out nice. But we will be back next week. Uh, if you join the Patreon, you are still in, t- in time. If you sign up now, you can still participate in our monthly listener polls to select the episode for August, if you would like to do that. So get over there while you still can do that. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait another month. But That's all we got this week. Until next week, stay polished, everybody.